Sermon on the Mount is considered the encapsulation of the New Testament teaching. And the Beatitudes are considered the encapsulation of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, the Beatitudes can be considered the essence of the essence of the gospel. Now, this is why last week I took, a, took some time to introduce this and try to distinguish between the crowd and the disciples. And it might have left some of you confused, and I didn't mean the Sermon on the Mount to be some kind of exclusivist or uh, esoteric kind of a teaching. The, uh, the essence of what I was trying to say is the Sermon on the Mount can be heard by anyone. It can be read by anyone. It can be studied by anyone. But it can be done only by a disciple. Because the challenge issued by the Sermon on the Mount is so deep and profound and that can be only done by the Christ who lived in you. You cannot do it. doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or an elder, how good a Christian you are. Unless and until Christ lives in you, only that Christ can accomplish what is written on the Sermon on the Mount and obviously Beatitudes through you. That was the essence of what I was trying to say. I don't want you to get confused. But it is so important that we should not just remain as just one of the, one among the, or one in the multitude, but we should climb the mountains of discipleship with Jesus. There is a mountain of teaching, then there is a mountain of transformation because the teaching has to transform us, otherwise teaching has no meaning. And but that transformation happens really then we climb the third mountain, which is the mountain of suffering where you actually pay a price for this teaching, pay a price for this transformation. That is the ultimate mountain Jesus is calling to climb with, with him. In other words, a disciple is a follower who climbs the mountains of discipleship with him. Now, we are going to look at the first Beatitudes today. Would you stand for the reading of the word? So there is only one verse, Matthew chapter 5, 3, and you know this. Uh, I think we should read it together, right? It's only, only one verse. So shall we do it together? Yes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. You know, month of June is a graduation season, right? Uh, we have two daughters, both of them graduating from the university this year. And yesterday we attended one of them at UCLA and another one in two weeks at University of Toronto in Canada. And one of the fun things about this graduation, generally a boring ceremony, just, you know, just waiting for that 30-second year kid is going up in the stage for two hours, right? <laughs> but I always wait for the commencement speech, you know, 
Um, was not that great, but, um, but <laughs> one of my favorite commencement speech, and I'm going to read from a commencement speech. Uh, this was delivered June 12th, exact, precise, same day, 17 years ago, 2005. I'm not going to say who was the speaker and where it was delivered. I'll keep it a secret for a while, but listen to this commencement speech, okay? 2005, June 12th. When I was young, there was an amazing publication called The Whole Earth Catalog, which was one of the Bibles of my generation. It was sort of Google in paperback form, 35 years before Google came along. It was idealistic and overflowing with neat tools and great notions. The team put out several issues of the whole Earth catalog, and then, when it had run its course, they put out a final issue. It was the mid-1970s, and I was your age. On the back cover of their final issue was a photo photograph of an early morning country road, the kind you might find yourself hitchhiking if you were so adventurous. Beneath it were the words, stay hungry, stay foolish. It was their farewell message as they signed off, stay hungry, stay foolish. And I have always wished that for myself. And now, as you graduate to begin anew, I wish that for you, stay hungry, Stay foolish. Now, I don't know about you, but if I heard this was the commencement speech delivered at my kid's college, I would flip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want my daughters to be hungry. I definitely don't want them to be foolish. Who in their right mind would say something like this? Stay hungry, stay foolish. But the man who said that was Steve Jobs, the man who created Apple and Pixar, the man who created culture for us. And the place it was delivered was none other place than Stanford University, one of the most prestigious institutions in the planet. As far as I know, there, are nobody, there is nobody hungry at Stanford. <laughs> Definitely there is nobody foolish at Stanford. Yet, Steve Jobs told the Stanford graduates, stay hungry, stay foolish. I believe Steve Jobs got this line from the Bible, from the Beatitudes in specific, because the Beatitude does exactly the same. Jesus did the same thing 2,000 years before Steve Jobs existed. He took world standard and turned it upside down. Upside down. <laughs> the Beatitudes say the same thing. Happy are the sad. Rich are the poor. Blessed are the cursed. That's what Beatitudes. That's why I said this is not for everybody. This is unless and until you are ready to have an upside-down perspective of life, this is not meant for you. 
Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that makes us wonder, what is being poor? And, you know, there is something called prosperity gospel, which is, you know, I don't want to get into that. You know that I hate the, the basic tenets of the prosperity gospel. But at the same time, I want you to know that the Bible doesn't promote a poverty gospel either. Sometimes people go to the other end that if you become a Christian, that means you have to be poor. You really are poor if, you, if you're rich and there is something fundamentally wrong with you. No, that's another extreme. The Bible doesn't really say that prosperity is a curse and poverty is a blessing. No, that's not what Jesus means. Jesus hung out with pretty rich people in these days, not just poor people. When he died, a new tomb was given. You know how precious to have a new tomb back in the days was given by one of his rich friends. He had friends in high places. He didn't really discriminate between rich and poor financially that way. Yet he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that makes us wonder the theological significance or the theological meaning of poverty or being poor. Especially if you read Psalms, <laughs> you, 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 come up, you come across so many verses. You know, let me read some of them just for fun, okay? These are some of the verses from the book of Psalms. 4017, but I am poor and needy, yet the Lord think of me. Psalm 75, as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quick, quickly to me. And 86, 1. Hear, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. 109, 22. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. 34, 6, my favorite verses. One of, the, one of my favorite verses. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. It looks like a, a bunch of poor people sat and read and wrote the Psalms for us. Actually, these were written by big shots of the day, like David and Solomon. Some of them never really knew, knew what poverty is. So being poor is not just about being financially poor. It means something else. Right? And particularly when Jesus was addressing the crowd at this time, and the connotation of this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, there was a community called Ebians, Ebians in, in Hebrew. And in Palestine, they had a quarters, more or less like, you know, no disrespect in, intended, but it is like a spiritual skid row of Palestine. And there, there were this bunch of poor people camped in that area. And they were called Ebians. Ebians, okay? Now, they were kind of ascetic monks, kind of. And they were a Jewish sect in the beginning. And some people believe that John the Baptist was one of the Ebians of that time. But eventually, it became a Christian sect and became ascetics and all that. But... Jesus, when he say poor in spirit, what he really means in that context is being an Ebian, Ebian, okay? 
Now, being an Abian is obviously being poor, but there are three steps involved in becoming poor. It's not that easy to become poor from a biblical perspective. It's easy to become poor from, uh, from our perspective, but there are three steps involved in becoming uh, Abian or a poor in spirit. Step number one is the easy one, is to lose everything. That's easy, right? We can all do that, right? So, um, it is not like, you know, oh, yeah, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. It's not, a, I don't have enough resources to pay my mortgage. Not that kind of, uh, you know, lack of funds. But you have to literally become bankrupt. You have to lose everything. That is the first step. You become bankrupt, okay? That's step number one. Now, step number two is because you lost everything, you should be dejected or rejected by everyone. Now, that is very different. Not everybody who loses everything will be rejected by their community or their family, right? It is one thing to be a destitute and quite another thing to be lonely and rejected. There are so many people who, who have nothing, but they have family that care for them, church communities that care for them. So in that way, even though they have lost, they have done the first step, they are still not ebbians, they are still not poor. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie called Slum Dog Millionaire, right? A while ago came out about the slums in India. And it won an Oscar, many Oscars actually, and it was a kind of fun movie. People really enjoyed that movie. But it is about the slums in India, particularly a slum called Dharavi in, uh, in Mumbai. I've been there multiple times. But there's a, you know, if you, if you ask me, there's a big difference between, again, no disrespect indeed, but to compare Skid Row here in Los Angeles with the, with the slum dog, uh, you know, or, 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 the, or, the, or a slum, a typical slum in India, the difference is that the poor in India, even though they don't have anything, just like you watch the movie, I still remember walking through one of those slums after, watch, after catching a movie in the middle of the night and watch, walking along the slum and you will see this dads and moms and the kids and they have no roof over their head. So they basically lie on the road looking at the star and you know, their head on the curb and looking at the star and they're giggling, they're laughing, they're joking. They have nothing but they have no worry in the world. They don't have to worry about mortgage. They don't have to worry about the bill. Sometime I wish standing there and listen to the conversation. There is something in, that, that's what that movie kind of captured. There is some kind of joy of community even in that. But when I compare it to some of the similar situation in other part of the world, particularly here in Los Angeles, it is not just about the lack of resources, lack of money, the loneliness, the rejection of the society. And that is so much more painful than the lack of resources or lack of funds, right? Now that's the second step. First, you become a destitute by losing everything. Second, because you are rejected. Because you have lost everything, you are rejected by everyone. Now that's still not enough. Now there's a third step of being poor. The third step is because you lost everything, because you are rejected by everyone, you turn towards God as your only source of help. 
Because when you are rejected by everyone, when you, are, when you lost everything, there are other ways to turn to. You can turn to different places. You can turn to drugs. You know, I mean, I'm not <laughs> recommending, but I'm saying that that's what the people do. You know, there are different ways of turning to different places. But a true Ebion, a one who is truly poor in spirit, will on this third step, look at God as his, not as his source of help, as his only, only source of help. Now, at least, at, at, at that point, you become an Ebion. See, I look to God all the time. I look at God as my source of help all the time. But if you ask me how many times I've looked at God as my only source of help, I don't know. I have to think about it. Because I always had backup plans. <laughs> I am a man of prayer. I promote prayer. I pray every day. But I always have a backup plan. <laughs> There is a plan B, just in case God doesn't answer my prayer the way I want. And I, have, I always have resources to go to. I, I can think about other ways to do this too, right? Now, that's not being poor in spirit. When you become an Ebion, when you become poor in spirit, you look at God as your only, only, only source of help. Then, then, only then, you are blessed. A man who is poor in spirit is the one who is completely detached from the world that he is so attached to God. Detached from the world and attached to God. And that's when we become abian or poor in spirit. And that's when we become, uh, we become blessed. And this has nothing to do with our bank account. It is very, very true that you can be materially rich and spiritually poor. And you can be materially poor and spiritually rich too. There is this famous story, and I'm going to read that, and that will be the conclusion of the sermon. Jesus said this story. You know the Pharisee, the prayer of Pharisee and the tax collector, right? This is how it goes. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now two men went to pray. One person has a very thick pocket that is the tax collector, but he has a very empty heart. And the other guy has an empty pocket. Pharisees are like part ascetics, you know. He has a very empty pocket, but he has a very full heart. Now that's interesting. Both of them, it says both of them went to pray, but only one man prayed. Did you catch that? 
Only one person prayed. This is what the Pharisee did, okay? Listen to this, it's almost funny. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself and then says, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. Pharisee did not pray to God and it's very written in plain English. Pharisee was praying to himself. Pharisee was talking to himself. God, who is the God here? Not the other God because he's talking to himself. He's looking at the mirror and looking at, oh my goodness, look at that. <laughs> God, he is talking to himself. He didn't pray. He went to pray, but he didn't pray. He introduced himself and then he started talking to himself. And he called himself God. Now, as hilarious as it sounds, quite often that's the way our prayer works too, right? I asked many people, did you pray about it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did, I did. Yeah, let me pray about it, and then they, we go. I mean, I'm, I'm part of the, you know, I mean, I'm not blaming it on anybody. I'm part of this problem too. We go and we, we said, oh, Lord, answer me, and, you know, and then, then we start thinking about this, right? That's what we do in our prayer. We call it meditation. <laughs> It's a very Christian spiritual word, but we are actually ruminating this. We are thinking through this. It's the same thing the corporate guys do. We just do, we just Christianize this. That's all. And we call it prayer. And we think and we talk to ourselves, and what would be a good idea? Then we get a great idea. Wow, that's a brilliant idea. God spoke to me. That's exactly what Pharisee does. He was talking to himself, came up with a great idea, and the Lord didn't question him either. I mean, everything he did was correct, and he didn't say any, he didn't lie. He did all of those things. But as opposed to the tax collector, the tax collector standing some distance away, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. See, this is exactly how you become an Ebion. In that process of stepping into the synagogue or temple to pray, he become an Ebion. He emptied his pocket right at that point, and he just kept a distance, and he knew that even though he had everything, he was rejected by the community because the tax collectors had no social standing. Everybody looked at them as traitors. He was a lonely, lonely man, and he went to God, emptied everything he had, and then he cried out to God, beating his breast, looked at God as his only source of help and that is precisely how you become an Abian and that's how you become the poor in spirit. And the tax collector gave us such a great example of being poor in spirit. I want you to know that God cannot work with us unless we become Ebians. Unless we become poor in spirit. Unless we desperately, desperately need God. Unless we look at God as the only, only source of help. Until that point, it is very difficult to get God moving into our realm. When Jesus came 
And he looked at the crowd and he said, if you remain in my words, you will become my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you know what was the response of the crowd? We are the descendants of Abraham. We have never become slaves to anybody. That's what they said. They were literally slaves at the time. Yet they said, we are the descendants of Abraham. We have never become slaves to anybody. And Jesus couldn't do anything. Because the truth cannot set you free unless you empty yourself. You know, there are seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And the seventh church is the church of Laodicea, which is in so many ways the example of a mirror reflection of the contemporary church and today's church. And this is what the Spirit of God spoke to the church of Laodicea. Hey, church, this is what you say. Revelation 3.17, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. This is what the church says in the book of Revelation, the new church, the last church, the contemporary church says that we are wealthy, we are rich, we don't need anything, we don't even need God. We have great pastors, great project managers who can run this whole show. Well, we will come to you and give your name to everything we do. We don't need you. Oh, the Spirit of God says, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need nothing, here you go, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Sorry if I offended you. It is the Spirit of God speaking. You're poor, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind, and you're naked. This is the message to the contemporary church by the Spirit of God because we think we can get this done unless we detach ourselves from everything we own, everything we have, and look at God as our only source of help. Nothing is going to change. We are not going to be blessed at all. The Spirit of God speaking. Can I invite the worship team to come? And I want you to have this etched in your heart. You know, even in our personal spiritual journey, I have had the privilege to minister in four different countries and talk to people from different spectrum of life. And, and when I share the gospel with excitement, you know, fundamentally I'm an evangelist. That, that gives me joy and pleasure when I share the gospel with other people. And something that baffles me all the time is this. Nobody I have ever met, no one is too bad to become a Christian. No one is too bad to become a Christian. But some are too good to become Christians. Some are too good to become Christians. They think they got it. They think they have figured this out. They think they can take care of their journey and their problem by themselves. They don't really need God. They will come to church. They will put money in the basket. They will be part of the barbecue. They will even be, take membership and join the board, and that's all great, but some people think they are too good to be Christians. But I tell you, 
no one is too bad to be a Christian. And if you are listening to me today, if you have never accepted Jesus into your life, I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to become an Ebion today. I don't know where you are from. I don't know what your background is. I don't know whether you're streaming, whether you're here. This is a 125-year-old church, and it's even comical for even for me to give an altar call or something like that, because this is, a, this is a church where we know everything about everything. But if you walked into this church, you wondered, what is this about? And I want to be in that desperate need, and I want to be blessed by God. I want to be in the kingdom of heaven and I'm willing to empty myself. I'm willing to give everything I have. And I want to become an Ebion. I want to be blessed today. And I want you to know that you are not too bad to become a Christian. I don't know if you're a serial killer. You're still not too bad to become a Christian. But the danger is that I want you to examine yourself. Are you too good to become a Christian? Are you too good to become a Christian? Look at the cross, the way that publican did, the way that tax collector did. Stay away and admit that you are a sinner and say, beat your breast and say, Lord, shudder at the shock of your sinful life and look at the cross and say, Lord, here I am. I'm willing to surrender everything I have and give it to you so that you can build me in you. And I'm willing to stay hungry. I'm willing to stay foolish. And the word of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. But unto us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And God saves us through the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 1, go home and read and I'm giving you an opportunity to. I want to pray for you. And if this is the first time you accepted Jesus into your heart that way. And if this is where you surrender, like the tax collector, and say, Lord, come into my heart. Bless me. I am a sinner, but I'm willing to, willing to surrender myself. If you raise your hand, I'm going to pray for you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, you took the standard of the world, tilted it, turned it upside down, gave it to us. Here we are, holding all our convictions, willing to turn it upside down for the sake of the kingdom at the foot of the cross. We surrender ourselves. We confess our sins, whether we raise our hands or not, whether we understood this or not, but like the tax collector, we come to you, we beating our breast. Lord, save us through the precious blood that was shed on the cross. In Jesus' name.